David took up his lament concerning Saul and his son Jonathan, and he ordered that the people of Judah be taught this lament of the bow. It is written in the book of Jashar. A gazelle lies slain on your heights, Israel. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath, proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines be glad, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised rejoice. Mountains of Gilboa, may you have neither dew nor rain. May no showers fall on your terraced fields. For there the shield of the mighty was despised, the shield of Saul no longer rubbed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the flesh of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back, and the sword of Saul did not return unsatisfied. Saul and Jonathan, in life, they were loved and admired, and in death they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. Daughters of Israel, weep for Saul, who clothed you in scarlet and finery, who adorned your garments with ornaments of gold. How the mighty have fallen in battle. Jonathan lies slain on your heights. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of women. How the mighty have fallen. The weapons of war have perished. All right, thanks, Leah. Good morning. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. Uh, my name is Caleb Zimmerman, and uh, I'm really excited to be up here preaching uh, for you all this morning. Um, I do look forward to it, uh, but if I'm also being honest, uh, it's a little nerve-wracking because I just don't want to speak heresy. So um, praying here as we dig in this morning that any heresy would be blotted out that comes out of my mouth, uh, but more importantly, that we would see God's character and the good news of his grace this morning. Um, so again, if you don't know me, my name is Caleb, um, and I'm one of the lay elders here at Hiawatha, which it's a fancy way of saying I don't get paid to be a pastor, which is, which is great. Uh, and so I get the opportunity one to two times a year to preach, and this is one of those times. A quick bit about me. So this is our family. It's my wife, Ellen, who usually more people know her than me, which is awesome. Uh, and then our three boys, Luke, Truman, and Fletcher. Fletcher being the one who still has sand in his hair from a week ago, so somehow. Uh, and we do have baby boy number four on the way. Um, so very busy in our house, and uh, Ellen is pretty amazing. Um, we've been at our family at Hiawatha for about eight years, uh, and we've loved being part of, of this community. Um, you know, we consider you all an extension of our family uh, and really love being in this community of believers. Um, you know, I don't, I don't get to come up here a lot, and so when I do, I always just want to remind people um, that there's more than Chris and Spencer on the, the elder team uh, who are pastors and shepherds here, and we truly love um, serving you all and just being part of this. And uh, we're not perfect, and uh, we're going to mess up and, and uh, not always do things the best way possible, but uh, just our heartbeat for my family, for the rest of the overseers, like, we love you all, and we love being part of this community, and I'm so thankful that uh, we get to serve in this way. So um, just want you to know, I'm committed to this church, to live faithfully in this city uh, that we all love, um, and that's, that's why I'm here. So, all right, all the mushy stuff's out of the way. Let's, uh, let's dig into to the passage here today. So, titled today's sermon in 2 Samuel, first sermon in 2 Samuel now, um, David's Lament. Uh, it's because I was feeling very literal, and this sermon is just, or this passage is just David's Lament. Um, but we're going to give some context. So, 
for those astute listeners who were here last week or who have been here for our series, um, you will see that we basically skipped over 1 Samuel 25 through 31, so roughly six chapters uh, of, at the end of 1 Samuel. A um, few reasons for this. Main one being time. Uh, we're choosing to preach kind of the mountaintops of First and Second Samuel versus just preaching it straight through, though we have done that with other books, um, which kind of leads to the second reason uh, that a lot of these chapters have similar preaching points. You know, the last four or five weeks, we've kind of been in these stories of the chase of, of David and Saul. Um, and so we want to be able to preach the book faithfully, but also not repetitively. So um, thus, we're kind of skipping ahead, but I'm going to touch on some of the points that, that are covered um, in, in the books that we skipped over. Um, but if you do have questions or anything, I'd encourage you to go read 1 Samuel 25 through 31. If you've been here uh, and you've kind of been along with us in this journey, like there's really good stories in there. There's really great gospel imagery. Uh, so I'd encourage you to do that. And if you have questions or things that you're unsure about, like please ask. Um, something we also like to mention just by way of context, uh, especially now as we're headed into another book, even though First and Second Samuel are basically the same book, just split in two. Uh, but we believe these are real events that happen, that these are real people um, real historical facts, um, but also that God is writing a bigger story through these, that it's more than just uh, what these people are doing, but it's God playing out um, his story in kind of all of human history. So as we read um, what we read today and in First Samuel, Second Samuel, and really anywhere in the Bible, uh, we can start to see um, ourselves represented, humanity. We can see Jesus represented, uh, and we can see the themes of the gospel playing out again and again. Um, so just want to tell you that because we're going to be doing a lot of that today. Um, a quick recap of what we're jumping over. So uh, just kind of quick events that could be helpful for you. Uh, in chapters 25-31 of 1 Samuel, uh, Samuel dies. David spends some time with the Philistines, which is kind of odd. Um, David and Saul continue the chase, kind of this, will they, won't they, will he kill him? Uh, David continues to build his army of men and continues to save Israel um, through a lot of different conquering things that he does. Um, and then finally, at the end of 1 Samuel, we read this narrative of Saul, Jonathan, and his other sons dying in a battle at the hand of the Philistines. Um, and so then today's passage is David lamenting their deaths. Um, and remembering them in this public way. So we'll dig more into that, but that's just kind of context of where we're at. So with those things in mind, a few helpful things that I, that I found helpful that I just had immediate questions when, when reading this. Um, so the book of Jasher, if you picked up on that, David ordered that this be written in the book of Jasher. It's also talked about in Joshua. I'll just read real quick. It says, So the sun stood still, and the moon stopped till the nation avenged itself on its enemies, as it is written in the book of Jasher. Um, and so... This book of Jasher was probably, uh, you know, scholars would say a book of poems, songs, or other stories that Israel kind of wrote down in their recorded history. Um, so it was not divine history, as in it's this, the book of Jasher is not in the Bible, um, but it was Israel's history. And so I thought that was just helpful because we can assume then that this lament and this song was shared um, kind of throughout all of Israel. Uh, and so that gives us some context too when we're thinking about how public this was and what David was doing. Additionally, another kind of little anecdote is that right before this lament, uh, I'd encourage you to read it, we read that an Amalekite comes and tells David of Saul's death. So this is how David figures out the news uh, of, that Saul has died and Jonathan has died. Um, and we're kind of led to believe this Amalekite man's like really excited, like, hey, look, I'm bringing you this news. This man who's been pursuing you is dead. He has Saul's crown. But then he tells David, I'm the one who killed Saul because he asked me to. Um, and so this man, probably looking for some kind of boon, like from David, uh, David has ordered killed uh, because uh, Saul was the Lord's anointed, and David said, you killed the Lord's anointed, and so you must be put to death. So 
That's the context, then, of us coming into this lament. Uh, Song, poem, dirge, whatever you want to call this. Um, But David pens this to honor the memory of Saul and Jonathan. So I've um, known I'm going to be preaching this for a few months, so I've just been kind of reading through it uh, and just praying about what I think, you know, God kind of wants us to see in this here this morning. Uh, But what I keep coming back to is just how complex the grief and love is that David is experiencing. Um, If you've been with us in this journey in 1 Samuel, if you're familiar with the book, uh, you know, we have Samuel, David, Jonathan, and Saul as kind of the main four characters. Um, Lots of twists and turns as they uh, interact with each other. Uh, But now, at the point of the story we're in now, each of these characters has had their story arc start and finish, except for David. So David is the only leader left. Um, I guess I kind of imagined him sitting somewhere quietly uh, and penning these words as he remembers with complex love and grief, Saul and Jonathan. Um, So as we've done so far throughout the book of 1 Samuel, uh, I'm going to look at this passage through two lenses. First, we'll look at the human side of this story um, and what the implications this has for our lives and and our our walk with Christ. And then we'll look at the divine lens of this and see how this story tells us more of God's great rescue plan for humanity and how that was ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. Um, And as we think about the human and divine, kind of my unique spin that I wanted to put on this is when we look at the human side, we're actually going to look at David and Saul's relationship. And when we look at the divine side, we're going to look at David and Jonathan's relationship. So I think you'll see what I mean as we dig in, but um, I'm really excited to explore this all with you this morning. Okay, so let's look at David and Saul. Um, I'm going to do kind of a little sampling of the relationship because we've been all over the place. Uh, there's been all kinds of little stories that we've dug into, but um, I kind of want to look at the mountaintops of their relationship, kind of how it started, um, where it got a little murky and rocky, all the way leading up to Saul's ultimate death. And so um, what's interesting, uh, I don't know if you picked up on it, but as David is writing this lament, he's not bashing Saul. He's actually remembering him in an incredibly positive light. Um, and so I want us to figure out why that is. Because if I was David... I probably would have had a bone to pick with Saul, and I would have let all of Israel know that. Um, so why is that? And let's, let's dig into that. So to start their relationship, if you remember, David first comes to Saul as his armor bearer uh, and, and also plays the, the lyre for him when he is distressed. And this kind of happens immediately after um, Samuel finds David kind of under the, the excuse of why he's visiting Jesse's family, because that's where God tells him to go. They kind of don't want to tell Saul, like, hey, you're going to be replaced as king. Uh, but then David immediately comes and joins Saul, and we read this about um, their relationship. Whenever the Spirit of God came on Saul, David would take up his lyre and play. Then relief would come to Saul. He would feel better, and the evil spirit would leave. Um, so it's this interesting portrait that we get of kind of David and Saul. I don't know if they're lounging or hanging in a garden. I don't know what they're doing, but uh, David's like providing leaf, uh, relief, playing this lyre, and um, is, is basically being like a, you know, salve to these uh, you know, evil spirits that are tormenting Saul. And I'm, I'm imagining in this time they're developing um, this bond. You know, Saul really appreciates David, and they start to have this father-son type relationship. Um, and we know that they do have that because ultimately David marries one of Saul's daughter and, uh, daughters and becomes Saul's son-in-law. Um, but Saul doesn't, uh, as far as we can tell yet, see what David will become. But he does start to see this now when we get the story of David and Goliath, which I'm sure all of us know. But um, Israel faces this impossible foe in Goliath, and David volunteers uh, to fight while the rest of the army 
cowers in fear. And Saul kind of tries to help, gives him some armor and says, here you go, but David can't even wear that. So he just goes out with his sling, slays the giant, kills this amazing foe. Um, and it's there that I think the complex seeds of their relationship are planted because Saul is amazed and thankful that David killed this Goliath and has rescued Israel, but he's also jealous uh, because he sees that he was not the one to deliver the people of Israel. And so we read that um, after this happened, uh, Saul did not let David return to his family, but he kept him with him. Uh, and I almost view this almost like his adoption type image, that Saul's kind of keeping David close, but kind of with ulterior motives. He wants to keep an eye on this guy who's doing a lot of stuff that he's not able to do. And then we see that David's given more power and authority. Let's read that. Whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. And this pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. And when the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, Goliath, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with timbrels and lyres. And as they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. And Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands? What more can he get but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. And so I think this is where we start to get into that game of cat and mouse or the stories of the chase that we've been in for the past few weeks of eventually Saul tries to kill David, David runs from him, but then David marries Saul's daughter after some of this back and forth has happened, and so he's Saul's son-in-law, uh, he's best friends with Saul's son Jonathan, um, and so even as Saul knows David has been blessed by God and is going to be king, he continues to chase him down and, and they have this really um, kind of complex relationship. Um, so I think last passage is kind of want to share just to shed light on this, and we're actually going to get into Saul's death. But I want to go back to what Chris preached last Sunday, and so if you weren't here, I'll kind of cover it. But um, we're going to read some of the verses. I thought about reading all of it, but for time's sake, we're not going to do that. But um, if you remember, uh, Chris used this image of like David crawling around on a bathroom floor because uh, Saul is relieving himself in this cave. David cuts off a corner of his robe and then reveals himself to Saul and says, look, the Lord delivered you into my hand, but I did not kill you. Um, I don't mean any ill will towards you. He uses father-type relationship towards him, reminds Saul of who he is, that he is the Lord's anointed, and also reminds Saul that the Lord is the ultimate one who will judge him, not David. So David says that, and then we pick up. Um, here's Saul's reaction. When David finished saying this, Saul asked, Is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. You are more righteous than I, he said. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. You have just now told me about the good you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him go away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. I know that you will surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now swear to me that the Lord, by the Lord that you will not kill off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family." And so here we see Saul uh, almost having this like conversion-like experience where he's admitting to David um, just he knows that he's done wrong. He knows that he's um, been pretty horrible to David. Uh, but notice the father and son language being used here. Um, we didn't read it, but David is, is revering Saul as his father and the anointed king of Israel. Yet he's calling him out for the evil that he's done towards David. Um, and Saul, uh, and he's letting Saul know that he's not the judge, but the Lord will judge him. And then Saul, in turn, hears David's voice, and he weeps. 
Uh, it's like in that moment he's struck with all that has been happening. He knows that David has given him grace after grace after grace. Uh, and David has had every right to kill Saul. And this is not the only time in 1 Samuel that David has an opportunity to kill him. But he doesn't. And Saul finally admits that he knows David will be king. And he just requests that he not wipe out his line of descendants. So finally now we're going to move to Saul's death. And this is a passage we have not preached yet. Um, so we're going to read this um, in full. This is 1 Samuel 31, 1 through 6. Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the Israelites fled before them, and many fell dead on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines were in hot pursuit of Saul and his sons, and they killed his sons, Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malchishua. The fighting grew fierce around Saul, and when the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically. Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and run me through, or these uncircumcised fellows will come and run me through and abuse me. But his armor bearer was terrified and would not do it. So Saul took his own sword and fell on it. And when the armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he too fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men died together that same day. And that's how 1 Samuel ends. Uh, Saul dies. Along with all of his sons, along with Jonathan, Samuel's dead. Um, it looks pretty hopeless for Israel. Um, Saul's been overtaken by the Philistine army that has been plaguing the people of Israel for years. He and his sons are killed. Um, and Saul kind of takes the coward's way out here and, and kills himself. Um, and this is the end of his, of his story arc. Not super glamorous. So why, why recap this, this storyline? Um, I want you to do something for me. Um, I want you to think of your parents or any, any parent figure in your life, really. Just linger on your relationship with them, good, bad, otherwise. Because um, as we dig in, um, I just kind of want them hanging there in the back of your mind. The reason I'm digging into Saul and David's relationship is because I think it helps give us some clarity uh, on the true complexity of just human relationships. Um, David and Saul love each other. They have a deep care and compassion for one another. In some ways, as the two kings of Israel, one current and one future, um, they can both truly understand one another as no one else can, like a father and son. They know each other deeply. Um, I think it's way too easy to paint Saul as the bad guy and David as the good guy. That is not how this relationship has played out. It's way more complex and deeper than that. Because um, Saul is a broken man who consistently takes things into his own hands. The Lord did choose Saul, and then Saul keeps turning away from him again and again and again. Um, and now David is rising up, but there has to be emotional whiplash there on the part of David. I mean, he's his son-in-law. Uh, one moment Saul is embracing David, the next he's chasing him down, trying to kill him. Um, and David's also an imperfect man. Um, we see him make many mistakes along his journey, and we're going to see him make more in 2 Samuel, even as he is a Christ figure and, and a man who, who is, as the Bible says, a man after God's own heart. So I just think there's some very real human encouragement here for all of us. Uh, I know many of us have incredibly complex relationships with the people in our lives, and especially our parents uh, or parent figures. Um, you know, for some of us, it's parents who maybe aren't believers that we just are not on the same page with them. Um, they don't get the way that we filter through decisions, and, and we just are sad that we don't have that strong relationship that we want. But it could also be parents who are believers or aren't, but who've, um, the way that they raised us or relate to us um, could have been abusive. It, it could have been shouting at us or hurting us or hitting us. Um, 
shaming us even. Um, you know, and sadly, I think it's often these parent-child relationships that um, leave the biggest wounds and scars on us. And the crazy thing is, as kids, we still have love for them. Um, you know, and I'm talking all spectrums here, but, um, you know, if our parents have wounded us deeply, if, if your parents have hurt you deeply, they're still your mom and dad, who you love, who raised you. Um, as kids, we have such a unique insight into our parents. Uh, I've told my dad this before. <laughs> I've seen him at his absolute best and his absolute worst. Um, and we understand them, I think, better than most people in life. Um, even if you've struggled to have a close relationship with your parents. Um, and I know we fall on a really broad spectrum here from amazing, incredible parents to incredibly hurtful, even abusive parents. And so I know this is broad, complex, and, and really nuanced. Um, and I'm not really trying to make sense of these hard, complex relationships other than to say this. You're not alone. You're not alone in this room. You're not alone in the Bible. Um, David has walked a similar path to you. Uh, one of the father figures in his life was actively trying to kill him. <laughs> and in the end, after he died, David wept for that man. He wept at the tremendous loss in his life and chose to remember the best things about him. That is some crazy, grace-filled enemy love. And that's not possible on your own. David, we hear him say this, trusted the Lord to work all things out in the end, to, to judge Saul for the wrong that he had done. Um, and he chose to remember what's best about him. Um, but that's incredibly hard to do, and it's actually, I don't think, possible for us to do it on our own. Um, so, and to be clear, I'm not saying to be reckless in these relationships. It's okay to have um, good boundaries. David literally had to run and hide in caves and flee the country uh, to be safe from Saul and his anger. But David still held love for Saul, despite it all. So this is just more broadly now, just a word of encouragement to anyone here who is struggling in your relationships. It doesn't have to be a parent relationship. It can be any person in your life right now where you're just struggling to care for them, but you still have love for them, but it's, it's confusing because you keep being in this game of, of will they, won't they, will they hurt me, will they not, can I be safe around them? Um, so I just want you to know that you're not alone in that. Um, you're not alone in this room. You're not alone in the Bible. Um, and especially now, as we have the light of the gospel to color these relationships, there is hope. And so let's dig back in here a little bit now. So, I mean, all this context on, on kind of David and Saul and just um, even where we're all at right now with our relationships, I think it makes it even more amazing when we read David's lament because this poem speaks so highly of Saul. So let's read. Saul and Jonathan... In life they were loved and admired, and in death they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. Daughters of Israel, weep for Saul, who clothed you in scarlet and finery, who adorned your garments with ornaments of gold. David chooses to focus solely on the great things that Saul did, how he adorned the women of Israel with finery as he won battles and fought for Israel, how he stuck with his son, Jonathan, in life and death, how he was a mighty warrior, a fierce defender of the people of Israel. And if we pause for a moment and look at this through David's eyes, I think something profound is revealed about the character of God. Um, my mind went to Isaiah, where God is talking about himself, and he says, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. 
So what effectively is David's lament doing here that's being proclaimed, that's written in this book that's going to be shared with all of Israel? He is blotting out Saul's transgressions. He could put Saul on blast. Is that what the kids say? He could put Saul on blast out to all of Israel and say, you are, you are evil. This was a man who was trying to kill me. The rightful king is here. Saul is dead. Um, but instead, he is blotting out his transgressions and remembering him in the best light possible. That's pretty countercultural to, to today where I think we want to hold people accountable to every wrong they've ever committed. Instead, David is seeing Saul in his best light. It almost feels to me like David is redeeming Saul with this lament. He is choosing to write about him as if he were the perfect king that the people of Israel asked for. David shows Saul a tremendous amount of grace. Um, He is trusting that the Lord will judge Saul appropriately, and David is holding him in high regard. So I'm not saying we need to go apply this to every relationship. Uh, That's just not wise in some cases. I think this, but I do think this is a pretty radical way of viewing those hard relationships and it's a pretty radical way of viewing how God sees us, that he blots out our transgressions, that when we wrong him and all the things that we've done, he chooses to see us in our best possible light, that he redeems us with what he did on the cross. So my prayer for all of us is that as we experience that grace, um, that God would give us glimpses of people as he sees them, the whole person who is complex and broken yet beautiful, um, and I actually think a verse back in 1 Samuel sums this up well as we try to see people the way that God sees them. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And so with the hindsight of the cross, we know that this power to love those who have hurt us doesn't come from us. It comes from Christ, who is the ultimate enemy lover, who wept for his friends despite knowing all of their worst sins, who took it upon himself to die for us despite all the ways that we try to kill him with our hearts and our actions. So I just want you to be encouraged this morning, wherever you're at uh, with the relationships. If all your relationships are great right now, um, praise God. That's awesome. But if you have a hard relationship, which I'm guessing most of us do, whoever you're picturing in your mind right now, whoever popped into your head this morning, my prayer is that God would give you the grace to see them through the eyes of Christ and that it would transform your relationships in ways that you never could have imagined. Okay, so now that we've all relived past or present emotional trauma, uh, let's go dig into um, the divine side of this passage. Let's see how the gospel is playing out um, now that we have this benefit of hindsight. My prayer is that this would be just a salve to our souls that we all need this morning, Um, that the glimpses we get here of Jesus would bring us to our knees as we sit in awe of how amazing the grace is that we have all received from a God who blots out our transgressions. So as I mentioned, I think it's pretty amazing to look at the gospel story playing out in the relationship of David and Jonathan. And what I want you to do is actually think about Jonathan primarily here as the Christ figure because I think that portrays such an incredible picture of the gospel in First and Second Samuel as we see David and Jonathan's relationship. Um, there might have been a verse that stood out to you when uh, we read our passage this morning, so I'm going to pull that up and we're actually going to spend our time focusing on this and talking about it because um, it, it kind of stands out. How the mighty have fallen in battle, Jonathan lies slain on your heights. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was more wonderful than the love of women. How the mighty have fallen, the weapons of war have perished. So how can it be 
Jonathan's love for David is more wonderful than that of women. David, a married man, is lamenting the death of his friend, and he pens this line. Um, There's a few ways, I think, to not read this passage, so we'll address those first, then we'll get to how to read it. Uh, But I kind of laughed this week when I was thinking about, um, you know, imagine David penning this letter. He goes and tells his wife, or wives, rather, uh, the news about Saul and Jonathan. uh, And then he goes, so I wrote this lament uh, to all of Israel to memorize and remember these men. And he kind of reads it out, and his wives look at him and go, more wonderful than that of women, huh? Like, you're sleeping on the couch tonight, but... (laughs) Um, no, so I don't read it that way. That's just where my brain went. Um, but that is not how it's meant to be read. Another incorrect way to read this passage um, is actually to use it as a defense for same-sex marriage. Um, kind of a curveball here, but a lot of people actually turn to this and say this is an example of a same-sex relationship in the Bible um, because David has a love stronger uh, than women for, for um, Jonathan, a man. Uh, but There's a lot we could do here, but just very briefly, um, I just believe this is not the way to read that. David and Jonathan were both married men with kids, uh, and we know that David's sin against Bathsheba, that he is clearly attracted to women um, and murders so that he can be with her. So um, lots of sin in there, but uh, this is not an accurate way to read this passage. But if you still have questions about it, uh, happy to dig into that. Um, And uh, my email is chris at hiawathachurch.com. So... But I am very happy to, to talk about it. Uh, and so, but David and Jonathan have this deep love for one another. So what are we to make of that? So let's go back to 1 Samuel 18. Um, and we're going to do the similar thing we did with David and Jonathan, or David and Saul. But now look at David and Jonathan and kind of look at the mountaintops of their relationship. So when we looked at Saul, uh, right after David kills Goliath, that's where these seeds are planted in Saul's heart against David. But similarly, right after Goliath is killed, there's a different type of seed that's planted with David and Jonathan. Let's read that. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him, did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. I think this is where we start to see this intensity of the relationship between David and Jonathan. Jonathan became one spirit with David, and I actually really love how the ESV translation puts this. It says, The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. So what, what's happening here? Why, 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 is it, why is the Bible speaking in such strong terms of the souls being knit together? One, I think Jonathan is amazed and in awe of what David did in defeating Goliath. And he sees that David has been blessed by God. Uh, and, and so he forms this deep covenantal friendship with him because he's just so thankful that David is um, just this savior figure that Israel needs. But then because of this, Jonathan loves David as his own soul. And the significance of these verses uh, is that symbolically, Jonathan is giving his birthright to the throne to David. So he not only makes a covenant with him to, to love him and, and be with him, but he also gives him his robe, his tunic, his sword, his belt, his bow. Jonathan is passing on symbolically all that is his to David. In other passages, we read that the only thing Jonathan asks of David is that his lineage be spared when David takes the throne, which to me sounds a lot like salvation. And so it's really interesting just to think about the difference in those reactions of Saul and Jonathan. 
But let's keep going. We get, we get it even more explicit here in 1 Samuel 20 uh, about this covenant where Jonathan says, So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord call David's enemies to account. And Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him because he loved him as he loved himself. So Jonathan reaffirms this covenant that they made in, in chapter 18, now in chapter 20, but he doubles down and he asks that the Lord bring David's enemies to account. But Jonathan knows full well who David's enemies are. Who are they? It's his own dad. It's, it's Saul who's chasing him down. And so Jonathan is forsaking his father. He's forsaking his birthright all to protect David and love David. And Saul's not immune to this either. We see his take on Jonathan's relationship with David. Let, let's read that. Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse and rebellious woman, do I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you? As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send someone to bring him to me, for he must die. And then right after this, Saul hurls a spear at Jonathan, uh, which he likes to do a lot. And uh, Jonathan flees from his father and goes and tells David that his father does indeed intend to kill him. But Saul's not clueless here. He's trying to like shake his son and say, look, you're not going to be king. What you're doing right now with David, this relationship that you have with him, this way that you've given your birthright to him, like your kingdom will never be established. And Jonathan is totally fine with that. So the last place that we see words exchanged between David and Jonathan in this story is um, just a little bit later on. It's after Jonathan's telling David uh, that his father intends to kill him. And these are kind of the last words recorded that we, have, uh, that we see. Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord is witness between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. And then David left and Jonathan went back to town. So I hope you're seeing the contrast here between David and Saul and David and Jonathan, where Saul is inconsistent, quick to anger, and quick to try and kill David. Um, Jonathan is steadfast, committed, and he bears his soul to his friend. They commit their covenant to each other again and again and again. You can find more places where that covenant is reaffirmed to each other, and they remind each other constantly of their friendship that they hold that goes further than just their friendship, but they say to their descendants, our witnesses, forever. But how can they use language like that? How could their descendants be witness to their relationship forever? I think it's because God is telling a, bigger, a better story here. He's telling a bigger story. And he is showing us through this incredible friendship more of what he is like and what he will do. Doesn't this language remind you of Jesus? What does Jonathan ultimately do for David? He lays down his life. He dies fighting the enemies of Israel alongside his father, knowing full well that he is giving up his birthright to the throne, but also knowing that God's favor is with David and that by his death and his father's death, David will be made the king of Israel and Israel will be saved. To me, that, that sounds like this. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Do you see this? Do you see the amazing grace that Jonathan shows David? He doesn't hold a grudge like his father. He doesn't hold a grudge that God has overlooked Saul and, and his line and is now blessing David and instead he embraces it. He steps down willingly from his throne that is rightfully his and he gifts it to David, free of charge. 
He only asked that David remembers his family and his lineage so that they would be saved. I think we can clearly see a picture here, uh, a picture of Christ, of Jonathan to Jesus. <clears throat> but I'm a visual learner, so I laid it out in a chart for my other fellow visual learners. We can see Jonathan on the left gave his birthright to David, asking nothing in return. What does Jesus do? He forgives us, giving us his birthright, asking nothing in return. Jonathan sidestepped a spear thrown at him because of his love for David and Saul's anger at him. Jesus was pierced by a spear because of his love for us. Jonathan is trying to step between his father and David, being this mediator between them, uh, but he fails ultimately, whereas Jesus serves as the mediator between us and a perfect God and ultimately makes us right and succeeds. And Jonathan, by his death, made his friend a king who could save a people. And Jesus, by his death, made the whole world right with God to save anyone who would come to him. I don't know about you, but this is just super encouraging to me to see um, this story playing out. Because another way I could preach this is I could say, go be like Jonathan now. Go love your friends really radically. Uh, like, why don't you give all your possessions, like promise your birthright to your friends. Um, and if you want to do that for me, that's great. Like, you, you can do that. <laughs> but that would, that, that would not be a good sermon. Uh, I don't think we can do that. We, we should love radically. We should try and love our friends in really incredible ways. But that's not the point of this story. The point is not to now go be like Jonathan. The point is to see Jesus and what he has done and the way that he has already done that for you, the way that he has already radically loved you. We should do this so quickly when we read stories like this. We need to stop messing around trying to look for moral lessons of how do I go be like Jonathan, but instead see how Jesus is the ultimate one who fulfills this. I know I hopped around a lot here as we we're kind of looking in 1 Samuel, so hopefully you're still tracking with me here, but I think when we stitch this together, we see how radical the relationship is. It's uncommon, it's impractical even, but it's meant to show us something greater. It's meant to point us ahead to what God would ultimately do for us through Jesus on the cross. To make this super direct, God's love for you, the love that you see displayed on the cross, is greater than any love that you have ever experienced in your life whether as a parent or a friend or a spouse, love that's been broken, love that's been incredible, whatever your experience is with human love, God's love is more wonderful than you could ever imagine. So that's when we circle back and how David says Jonathan's love was more wonderful, more wonderful than that of women. It's because he's telling a bigger story here. God's love for you Jesus' love for you to die on a cross is more wonderful than any human relationship you could ever have. So I want to end here, uh, but I want to leave you with something. Uh, I wanted to try and kind of reimagine this poem, uh, this lament, but instead of it being David's lament about Saul and Jonathan uh, and how they died, how do we instead make it about what Christ would ultimately do? Um, because we can totally see the, the images of that. So where David says to conceal this news in Gath, to not share it with the uncircumcised, um, to weep and to mourn, we now instead get to see how we rejoice at a death. So this is called Love has Triumphed, and it's a take on this poem in light of the cross. How love has triumphed on your heights, world. How the mighty has risen. Do not conceal it in Gath, nor hide it in the streets of Ashkelon. Let the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. Let the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. 
mountains of Golgotha, be clothed with joy and grace. Let blessings rain down on your fields, for the love of the Almighty was not was displayed, the love of Christ forever anointed with glory. From the depth of the grave, from the grip of death, the love of Jesus never turned back, his power over sin and death fully satisfied. Jesus, in life, he was despised, yet gracious, and in death he was not defeated. His victory is swifter than the morning light, stronger than the grave. Sons and daughters of earth, sing for Jesus, who clothes you in robes of white, who adorns your lives with his grace. How love has triumphed over the grave, the Lord lies risen on your heights. I rejoice over you, my Savior and brother. Your love for me is wonderful, far surpassing any other. How the mighty has risen, our weapons of war have been laid to rest. Let's pray. God, as we remember the words of 1 Samuel 16, that people are so quick to look at the outward appearance, you look at the heart. God, would you open the eyes of our hearts that we may see Jesus. And as we see Jesus more clearly, help us see everything else from his perspective. Help us to see people with the eyes of grace. Help us to see the beauty, the dignity, and your image in people much more clearly than we notice their brokenness and their inconsistencies, of which are many. And when we do see their weaknesses, may we do so with compassion and understanding, not with shock and irritation. Help us to see what you see in our parents, in our friends, in our spouse, in our children, even in total strangers. Father, thank you for your radical love that through Christ we are more than conquerors, that you've given us a new life in Christ, that you have triumphed over the grave, you have risen from the dead, and you did not withhold your love from us, that you have loved us first so we can now go love others. Give us grace this week as we look to love those around us as you have loved us, and help us to rest in the grace and peace that can only come through the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.